0: Whenever I have the opportunity to preach, one of the things that I'm concerned about is continuity. In general, since I don't normally preach every week, I'm preaching a single sermon on a single passage, and I know there's a finite amount of time for me to develop the text and explain it. So as a result, I generally, as a matter of personal discipline and as an assist to myself, I try to preach through books in somewhat roughly consecutive order. I'll pick a book and I'll just start working my way through it as I have opportunities. And it does a couple of things. One, it helps me keep Scripture's meaning in context. No passage exists in isolation. It's always a part of a chapter, which is part of a book, and there's a reason it was written. And by going through a book from beginning to end, it helps minimize the risk that I will just try and take the opportunity to preach on something that's just a pet peeve or a hobby horse. I never want to use the privilege of preaching To advance some personal agenda or just to talk about something that is hot on my mind. And even if the messages are broken up over time, and it might be months between messages, I'm still kept tethered to the scriptures so that I keep things in context. Over the last few years, I've been doing that with a couple of different books as I've had opportunities. One of those books is the book of Colossians. In fact, two weeks ago when I had the opportunity to preach, I I talked about church membership in the context of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3 verses 15 to 17. And as I did, I mentioned as part of that that I had previously in different sermons at different times preached the first 14 verses of Colossians chapter 3. So as I was preparing to preach today, it made logical sense since I just was preaching in Colossians and that I've preached the first 17 verses, verse 18 would make sense to go there next. And then I read the passage. And my heart sank. And I looked at a few verses and I said, I don't know that I want to go there. If I'm honest with myself, I wanted to skip those verses. But I remembered, I truly did remember a verse that I heard when I first started teaching years ago. 2 Timothy 1.7, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. So I decided not to be timid and continue to press on in Colossians chapter 3. And when I made that decision, despite my moments of cowardice and my reservations, I texted Debbie my plans. And here's what I texted to her. And I quote, I will preach the next few verses in Colossians 3, specifically 3, 18 to 21. I should be able to alienate the entire church with one message. <laughs> now, of course, I don't want to alienate anyone. But I do have that fear in my flesh. Because this text speaks to us in a very personal way. It steps on toes at times. I don't believe it's complicated. I even believe in a Bible teaching church like this, most people would pay lip service and say, I agree with that. But living it out is not nearly as prevalent amongst Christians as it should be. And when the spotlight of Scripture is turned on us, particularly in our closest relationships, it can get uncomfortable. We can get uneasy. In fact, we can get a little frustrated. But God put this in Scripture. In fact, God put it many places in Scripture, as we'll see. It's His Word. It's not mine. So we're going to press forward. And I simply pray that if God's Word makes you uncomfortable or frustrated this morning, don't shoot the messenger. Take it up with Him. So what is this issue? I'm so... Cautious about addressing is the Christian family, the roles of Christian wives and Christian husbands and Christian children and Christian parents. Our text, Colossians 3, 18 to 21, provides a simple snapshot of what God expects for every Christian family. These aren't suggestions. These aren't tips for how to have a happy home. These are commands of the Lord. Jesus said in John fourteen fifteen, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That is exactly what our text is this morning. These are commandments from the Lord and they're a measure of our love for Jesus. So be careful this morning as we work our way through the text. If you find yourself rebelling against what I'm saying, recognize that it has nothing to do with me. It has to do with the word of God. And you've got to be careful, because if you're rebelling against the word, it doesn't speak well of where your heart is at the moment in your love for the Lord. So I'm going to remind us all the context of this letter very briefly, and then I'm going to give a few disclaimers because of the nature of the topic, and then we're going to dive right in. Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul to a church in a small, insignificant, from any geopolitical sense town named Colossae, and Paul was writing from prison in Rome, The church in Colossae was doing well, they were growing and learning, but the founder of that church, a man named Epaphras, had traveled all the way to Rome, it's a lengthy journey, because he was concerned about false teachers impacting and negatively harming the church. And so the Apostle Paul, with his apostolic authority, wrote this letter for the encouragement of the believers, but also the protection of the church. And he certainly has a lot in there telling them what they're doing well and how he's praying for them. He talks to them about Jesus and what they have and the fullness of their salvation so that they wouldn't be distracted by false teachers preaching a different gospel. And then in chapter 3, he begins to talk very practically about living out the Christian life in a variety of ways in terms of how we think, in terms of how we avoid sin, in terms of how we interact with other believers. And here in verses 18 to 21, how we act in the home. Paul is going to apply basic truths that apply to everything in life and apply them to our familial relationships as Christians. I believe the connector is Colossians 3, verse 17, the last verse that I preached on last time. It says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And whatever you do in word and deed includes your family. Paul's going to challenge us to live this out, not just amongst other believers, not just here amongst the body of Christ, but to live it out in our homes. So now a few disclaimers. First and foremost, this passage is instruction for Christians, for believers. Certainly God's word addresses his plan for marriage and families. But this text is about the unique responsibilities of believers. This isn't a blueprint for laws and rules we need to apply to marriages in America. Rather, Paul is not addressing society at large. He's addressing us personally as believers and how we run our households. If you're not a believer and you're visiting this morning, these words will sound strange because... They're counterintuitive and they're nothing like what the culture says. In fact, even if you wanted to, you couldn't apply these on your own because the problem for you is not your family structure and your family relationship. The problem is you, is you're estranged from God. God is holy and our sin separates us from him. But Jesus Christ came and died in the place of sinners. He paid the punishment for sin for all who would place their faith in him so that we might have newness of life. If you're not right with God, repent of your sins, accept the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. Then you can worry about applying scripture to family and everything else. But if you know Jesus, this text is for you. Second, this is not an exhaustive treatment of every nuance of every family. Paul gives very direct instructions, I believe, to every member of the household. They're very clear and they're very direct, but I could preach a sermon on any one of these topics. And in fact, books have been written about each aspect of this. It's not possible in a single sermon to be exhaustive. Paul wrote a letter and he gave a snapshot. He gave an overview. He gave general principles and that's what I'm going to try and do this morning. Yes, there is more to be said. We just don't have time to say everything. Third, I'm well aware before I start that each and every one of us has failed already in these areas. There is no wife, no husband, no child. There are no parents who have fully done what is in that text. Please don't despair. Even if you've blown it, even if you feel like there's no hope, you're not condemned in Christ, but you must repent and change beginning now. Don't let your past failures keep you from confessing them to God and striving with all your heart to obey these commands of our Lord. Finally, I realize that even amongst Christians, some families are incomplete. In some cases, spouses have passed away. In some cases, divorces have already occurred. Those are tragic and sad events. And they're some of the devastating effects of sin on God's creation. But apply what you can in your current situation, even if you're not currently living in the Christian ideal home. But enough disclaimers, let's dive right in. Turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already done so, Colossians chapter 3, we're going to read verses 18 to 21, and then I'll give us our outline. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them children be obedient to your parents in all things for this is well pleasing to the Lord fathers do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart these are rapid fire commands but I believe they give us God's foundations for a Christian home and so I'm going to present it that way and there are four foundations God's foundations for a Christian home the first is this a wife who embraces her supporting role a wife who embraces her supporting role. Verse 18 says this, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. This simple statement, this simple command is probably more offensive to our culture than anything else I will say today. Nothing goes more against the grain of our modern sensibilities than the idea that there is a hierarchy in marriage And that hierarchy places the husband as the head of the home. But the word of God is clear. This is what God has said. Even as we wander into this, it's a requirement for everyone, including women, to think what's already been said in Colossians 3, 2. Set your minds on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. We have to think biblically, not culturally, when we approach these issues. But Paul is saying something very direct. Wives, be subject to your husbands. I've said over and over, this is a thus saith the Lord statement. This isn't how to have a happy home. This is how to please God. And obviously this is addressed to married Christian women and the command is in a, special, in a specific way. It says be subject to, but really what it means is you make yourself subject to. You make yourself submissive to the authority of your husband. It is your duty and responsibility as a Christian wife to prepare your heart to be submissive, to be in subjection to. It means to place yourself under another person's authority. In this case, in the Christian view, it is your husband. That's God's created order in the home. The husband is the head of the household and the wife is his support and helper. Now this wasn't just some unique cultural statement that Paul made to a city in modern Turkey 2000 years ago. This is part of the created order as is clear from scripture. In Genesis chapter 2:18 we read this, then the Lord God said, "It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him." And the text makes it clear that there were no animals, there was nothing else in the created order. That was a suitable helper, and so God fashioned a woman out of the man, and we read beginning in verse 23 of Genesis 2, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God created woman to be the perfect helper to man, and this was the basis on which God himself created the institution of marriage. Now, the fall destroyed many things in Genesis chapter 3, but it never changed God's plan for marriage. Jesus made that abundantly clear in Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 4. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This isn't some new invention of Paul. This ties back to the created order. And Jesus affirmed that that still applies even though the fall has occurred. Paul elsewhere said in 1 Corinthians eleven three. 3, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Further down in the same chapter, verses 8 and 9, for man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. So I get it. Society rejects all of that, but that is the truth of the Word of God. So the duty of a Christian wife is to be subject to their husband's authority as part of the created order. That's God's expectation for you. That's God's plan for you as a Christian wife. It's what God demands. Now, society rebels against this for a variety of reasons. Number one, it rebels against everything from the word of God. But it has this idea that we're saying that women are somehow inferior, which could not be farther from the truth before God, men and women are of equal worth. Paul, who gave this command, also stated this foundational truth. Galatians 3, 26 to 29. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. A woman is of infinite worth. A hierarchy instituted by God in no way implies inferiority. In fact, he sent his son to die for women just like men. And before the Lord... We are the same in terms of our forgiveness and our righteousness. But that doesn't change that God did make men and women and he gave us different roles in a Christian home. There is a hierarchy and an order. Wives, be subject to your husbands. Now again, this is limited. My wife Debbie isn't required to be submitted to somebody else. Her submission to me is part of our covenant relationship before God. But it's clear the word of God requires wives to recognize their supporting role in the family. How does that play out in a Christian home? The husband does have the final authority. A wife, by all means, should lovingly make her views known. She is her husband's helper. He needs your input. He needs your wisdom. He needs to listen to you. A Christian wife has unique skills and talents and abilities given to her by God, but they're not to be used as a free agent. They're to be used under the authority and then with the guidance of her husband for the betterment of their family. She is on the same team as her husband, but ultimately... Borrowing our sports mindset, he's the captain. I understand this is hard. If we submit to anyone, we're vulnerable. We feel at risk. But understand, the duty to submit is not something unique in Scripture to women. Every one of us has to submit in different ways. We're required to submit to the government. We're required to submit to our employers as members of this church, you're required to submit to the elders. Wives, when you submit to your husbands, when you make yourselves subject to their authority, you're following Christ's example. Jesus was the God-man walking on the earth, and yet while he was on the earth, he willingly submitted himself to the Father's will. When you submit, when you recognize the God-given authority over your life is your husband within the home, you're following the example of Jesus. You're trusting God. I think that's why Paul goes on to say, wives, be subject to your husband as is fitting in the Lord, because this is a spiritual activity. Your submission to your husband is pleasing to God. It's what he wants for you. It's what's best for you. I believe that's why this command is not found in one place in Scripture. It's found in multiple places. We already have read in Ephesians 5, but I'll read again verses 22 to 24. Basically, that whole section that I read this morning in Ephesians is a parallel expanded version of what Paul wrote to the church in Colossians. Ephesians 5, 22 and 24, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. There is no area where the church has the freedom to rebel against the authority of Christ, and that's the same way within the home. It's a comprehensive duty. It relates to everything in your life. Just as you submit to the Lord, you're also to submit to your husband and his authority. And this applies even if your husband is failing in his role. First Peter 3, 1 says this, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husband's so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. And this isn't just about actions. It's about how you view your husband. It's about your heart. That's why Paul, I believe, at the end of Ephesians 5, 33, concludes it this way. Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Now, there's only one exception to this comprehensive duty. If your husband were to ever tell you to sin, then you would respond like the apostles did in Acts 5.29. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. But other than that, you have to willingly accept that God's placed you in the home and he requires you to Submit. Wives, you can do this. As hard as it may be, as challenging as your circumstances may be, you're empowered by the Holy Spirit. If God commands you to do something, He gives you all the tools that you need to do it if you're walking by the Spirit. There's a promise in Second Peter of how comprehensive the equipping for all of us, but this would include wives, is in Christ. Second Peter 1, beginning in verse 3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellent, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Wives, God gives you his power through his spirit. He gives you his promises and his word to guide you and he will enable you to subject yourself to your husband because that's the God-ordained authority. Let me suggest to you, ladies, if you've been praying that you would have a godly household It will not happen if you're not willing to submit to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. Now, to every husband here who's been cheering on the inside saying, preach it! (laughs) I have a caution for you. Because now the spotlight is turning to you. God's foundations for a Christian home. One, is a wife who embraces her supporting role. But two... A husband who loves sacrificially and gently. Verse 19 says this. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. This command is just as authoritative of what was just given to wives. Husbands, love your wives. This is far beyond the general duty we have to love one another second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. This goes beyond that. And even though it's in the context of a Christian marriage, it goes beyond romantic love or even best friend kind of love. This is the type of love that Christ had for the church. This is a selfless, comprehensive love that recognizes our wives are not just our partners in life, but they're our sisters in Christ who deserve our honor and protection. This is an ongoing duty for every Christian husband that never stops. And hear me carefully, it has nothing to do with how your wife acts towards you. It has nothing to do with her behavior. It is a sin to fail to love your wife no matter how she acts towards you. Part of the reason I read Ephesians 5... Because it's intriguing that of all the things that he does, Paul three different times in one chapter, in one portion of the chapter, says this same thing, husbands love your wives. Ephesians 5.25, husband love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5.28, so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. The beginning of 533. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself. The picture is comprehensive and it's clear. Our wives' interests should be placed in front of our own. We're supposed to live sacrificially for them, more concerned about their well-being than our own comfort and desires. Jesus died to save sinners. He laid down his life to purchase the church. He sacrificed his comfort and his well-being. He was tortured and suffered and humiliated because he loved us and was willing to die for us. He placed the interest of others before his own needs and wants and he didn't do it because we were living such good lives he did it while we were his enemies romans 5 8 but god demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners christ died for us Jesus didn't wait for us to get our act together and start doing things correctly to show his love to us. He poured out his love for us even when we were his enemies. The picture of Jesus providing in his church should guide you husbands into terms of how you view your wife. Jesus cares for his church. He protects his church. It's an environment of safety and protection for growing and learning or at least it's supposed to be. That's how you should love your wife. That's what type of household you should create. By treating your wife like Jesus treats you, like Jesus Jesus treats the church, with forgiveness and kindness and patience and long suffering, seeking what is best for her, not what makes you happy. This isn't just outward behavior, men. That's important. But it's how you view her. It's what's going on in your heart about this helper that God has given you out of his grace and kindness. Verse 19 addresses this very issue, and I think it's a damning indictment that we have to be told this, husbands. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. It's an angry attitude of the heart. Some translations say, do not be harsh. Don't treat your wife harshly. Isn't it embarrassing that we have to be reminded not to be cruel to our wives? To not always be angry at them for not measuring up to our standards? Frustrated with them, irritated and finding fault because as the king of the castle, they're not jumping high enough when we said the word. It's not love at all. Sadly, both before I was in ministry and after, since I've been in ministry, I've seen many men who mistreat their wives emotionally, relationally, and yet they think they're doing fine with the Lord. Those men are deceived. 1 Peter 3, 7 says this, you husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Men, if you're embittered against your wife, if you're resentful for the wife God gave you, if you're unhappy with her because she's not meeting your standards, you're not loving her as Christ loved the church. And you're not honoring her as a fellow heir, as a sister in Christ. And in that situation, according to the word of God, your prayers are hindered. You could almost envision that you've got a tin roof over your head and the prayers aren't making it to heaven. There are probably many men in this church right now who should be a lot more afraid of God's hand of discipline for how they dishonor their wives. but God is not mocked. Hebrews 4:13 says, and there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You can fool people here on Sunday, but you're not fooling your wife and you're not fooling God. Can't tell you the number of times in counseling I've seen men sitting across my desk berating and talking bad about their wives lamenting that their wives won't submit and won't do what they want. And of course, if I was talking to the wife, I would tell her, submit. But these men are so angry. They're slandering their wives. They're running their wives down. I can see that they're embittered. They're verbalizing what's in their hearts, but they're complaining about their wives and they've completely missed the hypocrisy that is clear to anyone. They have a log in their own eyes because they're embittered against their wives and they're not loving them but they think the issue is the speck in their wife's eye that they call submission They needed to show their wives love and gentleness but they were just full of anger and bitterness I'm not trying to condemn all the husbands at Lakeside but I do want some of you to wake up. You've got to realize the seriousness of what's occurring. I want to say this as lovingly and firmly as I know how. It doesn't matter how far short of God's standards your wife falls in your eyes. You can tell me a thousand faults with your wife and you may be right. It doesn't matter. You are still to love her and sacrifice for her no matter what. Think about God's love for you and God's love for the church. Do we fall short of his standards? Of course we do. Do we sin when we know better? Of course we do. Does God love us and he laughs? Absolutely not. Husbands, you should apply to your wives a profound statement about God's love that we've read many times and we read over, but it matters. 1 John 4, 10 and 11, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That certainly, men, includes your wives. But even more so, you have a different duty to her. Men, if you want a godly household, I assure you the solution is not for you to focus on your wife and what she's not doing. Your first action has to be that you love her as Christ loved the church, regardless of her behavior. And that you make it known to her that the most important thing in your life are her desires and her needs, not your own wants. If you do that, I'm confident submission won't be an issue. Because you won't be focused on her behavior. You'll be focused on her needs and her well-being. So Paul started us down a difficult road. He laid out hard truths for husbands and wives. But there's a third member of the household that is dressed in our text. Paul addresses children. So if you're a Christian child living at home, living under your parents' authority the word of God is going to speak to you. God's foundation for a Christian home, a wife who embraces her supporting role, a husband who loves sacrificially and gently, and third, a child who accepts parental authority. A child who accepts parental authority. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Paul doesn't put a specific age limit on this. But it seems clear he's not talking about adult children who are out of the home living independent lives. He's talking about those who are still living under the protective umbrella of a Christian home. And to such children, God places a profound and absolute duty. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things. This is a serious command He's telling you, young people, children, that you don't get to make up your own rules. You don't get to call the shots. God has given the decision making authority in your life to your parents, not you. And obedience is just that you do what your parents tell you to do, you abide by the rules of the household. When your parents say don't, you don't. When your parents say do, you do. Again, there's the same exception in any context of submission. Acts 5.29, you obey God rather than men. If your parents ask you to sin, you would lovingly tell them that you can't do that. But that's not the issue for most children in a Christian home. The bottom line If you're a child under your parents' authority, you have to do what they say. And if you don't, you're rebelling not just against them. You're rebelling against God. Again, this is not some cultural thing that was unique to this particular church. This is a part of the created order. This is built into the fabric of how God created the family. That's why it's a part of the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy 5 16 honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you that your days may be prolonged and that it may go well with you on the land which the Lord your God gives you and Paul makes it clear the application of this in the modern Christian household because in Ephesians 6 he incorporated it into his command Ephesians 6 1 to 3 children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. It's significant that even Jesus, when he was a child, the God-man submitted to his parents. Luke 2.51 says this, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Young people, please listen to me. I pray that you're serious about Jesus. I hope you go to youth group and to Sunday school classes, and I hope you love your Christian friends. And I'm excited if you go to winter camp and if I see you at summer camp. And I'm excited if you want to be a part of missions trips. Those are all wonderful things. But more than anything, I want you to please God with your life. And there is no easier measuring stick of your love for the Lord than whether you will be willing to obey your own parents. Particularly when you don't agree with their rules. Do you sneak behind your parents' back and download apps that they said you can't use? You're sinning against God. Do you disregard what your parents have said and secretly communicate with a boy or girl you're like even though your parents said don't do that? You're sinning against God. Do you smile to your parents' face and say I will even though in your heart you're saying as soon as you're gone I won't? You're sinning against God. This is serious. It's not a trivial thing. It's interesting, several times the Bible talks about the evil of the last days as the world goes deeper and deeper into sin. And there's a laundry list in 2 Timothy chapter 1 of evil, beginning at verse 1. But realize this that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, and on and on it goes disobedience to parents is ugly it's sin it's evil don't think it's a trivial thing to go behind your parents back even if your friends chuckle and laugh and encourage you God's watching you're not hidden from him he knows I challenge you young people if you claim to be a Christian obey your parents If you don't submit to the authority that God has placed over you, don't be deceived by the fact that you love youth group and you come to a lot of services. James 1.22, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. If you live in disobedience to your parents without remorse and without repenting, you're deluding yourself. But the promise is, if you will live obediently, this is well-pleasing to the Lord. That's what we should all want, the favor of God on our lives. And young people, young Christians, if you'll be obedient, if you'll trust the authority that God's placed over your life and your parents, you will please the Lord by such actions. I saw well-pleasing to the Lord, and it reminded me of the statement when Jesus came up out of the waters of baptism, Matthew 3, 17, and behold, a voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well-pleased. That's good company to keep, children. Amen. But parents, especially fathers, but parents, you can make this issue of obedience easier for your children by your approach to them, and that leads to the final foundation. God's foundations for a Christian home a wife who embraces her supporting role, a husband who loves sacrificially and gently, a child who accepts parental authority, and fourth and finally, Parents who care about their children's hearts not just their behavior. Parents who care about their children's hearts not just their behavior. Verse 21 says this, Fathers do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. This is a very important point. And certainly if a wife is living in submission to her husband and a husband is loving his wife as Christ loved the church the warnings of verse 21 won't be as relevant because I'm confident you're walking with the Lord, you won't have this problem. But it's here for a reason because not every parent is doing what they're supposed to do. Far too many children in Christian homes have experienced what is forbidden by this text. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Now again, I do believe fathers are responsible for the home, but this word is translated elsewhere, parents and so I think it's a duty of both husbands and wives of both parents but certainly the responsibility lies with the father and sadly quite often it's the father who's guilty the command is straightforward do not exasperate your children it has the idea of provoking a child of stirring them up in anger and frustration by the way you consistently treat them no doubt often in the area of discipline and how you run the household Again, the parallel passage in Ephesians 6 says this in 6, four: Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So I want to be very careful with this because I don't want you to hear the wrong thing. It is the duty of every parent to instruct and discipline their children, period. Paul's not saying anything different. So let's think through this carefully. First, parents, we have to remember our theology. Children are not neutral, they're not basically good little people who can freely find their way. They're rebellious sinners. Romans three twenty three for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that includes children. From birth they're not good little angels, they're good little rebels. Psalm 58.3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. Those who speak lies go astray from birth. Babies are cute, toddlers are fun, but bound up in their heart is foolishness and sin. Proverbs 22.15 says this, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. So discipline must be a part of a child's life. If you leave a child to decide for himself he or she is a sinner they will ultimately choose sin. So at times it's inevitable that the direction and discipline that we do as parents will take the form of appropriate non-abusive physical correction. That's the word of God. Proverbs 13:24 He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. In fact, the picture of Scripture is that if you don't discipline your child, you're not treating them with love at all. Hebrews 12, 7 and 8 it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So Paul is not saying in verse 21, never make your child unhappy. Don't miss here. He knows children need discipline and direction and no child likes to be told no. There's a certain amount of challenge with a child and so in no way is is Paul saying that we have to cater to and make sure that our kids are always laughing and happy because sometimes the shiny object that the kid wants has a hook in it and it will hurt him. But what Paul is talking about is how we go about this discipline and instruction of our children. He knows they need the discipline, but he doesn't want us to exasperate them. He doesn't want us to provoke them to anger. It's possible to be overly critical of your children, to be always on their case. I'm not saying you ever overlook sin, but it comes down to your heart attitude towards them. Certainly you discipline your children, but you should also praise them and make sure they know they're being loved. Even the discipline isn't because you're angry with them, but it's because you want them to be what God wants. Spend time with them and have fun with them. Their only interaction with you should not just be the rod of discipline. It's easier at times as parents, and I've been guilty of this, we focus only on the negative and trying to conform behavior and lose track of the fact that these are little people created in the image of God. Yes, they're sinners and they need to be corrected, but they also need to be loved. If we only criticize, if we only find fault, kids can get a distorted view of themselves and what it means to be a child. Along the same lines, many kids are never shown any freedom at all with their lives. Everything is rules and regulations. Don't, don't, don't. Of course, we must have boundaries for our kids. This is a dangerous world. No boundaries is foolishness. But there's such a thing as overprotection. Children have to learn how to interact with a fallen world, certainly with your guidance, but if they're only ever on a leash, brought back into submission with the rod... It distorts their view, not only of you, but of God. I remember when Debbie and I first came to Lakeside many years ago, our oldest daughters were 10 and 8, and our youngest daughter was a newborn, and I remember Pastor Steve and Michelle saying to us, try and say yes as much as possible to your kids. Drawing on their own wisdom as parents, they were sharing with us, everything can't be no. No if we exasperate our kids through our anger and unfairness and rigidity, if we stifle them and push them, Paul warns us it has consequences. He says, fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. In other words, it's a danger that if you're too oppressive as a parent, if you're too overbearing, you can break your child's will and not in a good way. They can become discouraged and depressed. Despite their best efforts, they may believe that it's impossible to ever have your approval or your love. They may comply, but it'll be with a broken heart. I read a compelling story in a commentary by R. Kent Hughes, a pastor, and I think it paints the picture well. It's a long quote, but follow along with me. During much of my college years, I worked for a store which had a large part of the trade of the rodeo cowboys in Southern California. I learned there are two ways to break a horse. One is with the progressive use of a halter, bit, blanket and saddle. Done correctly, this can produce a full-spirited, obedient horse. Another way is sometimes used with especially difficult horses. The method is simple. The Wrangler simply takes a two-by-four and knocks the recalcitrant horse to its knees. A horse is said can be tamed this way, but with great cost. You'll have a spiritless animal. An animal that, though obedient, will never be what it could have been. There are children who are like this. Their spirits have been broken. They are obedient, but something is missing. They have, to use Paul's words in verse 21, lost heart. They withdraw and keep it all inside or they rebel when they get big enough. The results are painful either way. Parents, please don't let it be this way in your home. Discipline and love, not anger. Discipline for rebellion, not carelessness. Discipline with clear instruction, pointing them to the gospel in Christ, not for the sake of your own pride. And above all, make sure even in the midst of discipline that your kids know that they're loved. It's a hard text. I can't preach it without thinking of my failures on so many levels. In fact, I'd be surprised if there's anybody here who doesn't feel guilty, you probably fell asleep and missed it. please don't let the conviction of the Lord pass. If God has brought conviction on you as a wife or as a husband or as a child or as parents, don't ignore it. Repent before God. Ask for forgiveness. Be it of your spouse or of your children or children, ask forgiveness from your parents. Do something about it. And we have the promise of God that we will be forgiven. If we confess our sins, First 1 John nine, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. And if by chance you failed and there's no opportunity for you to have a do-over, certainly repent. But don't allow yourself to fall prey to the lies of Satan that you're condemned. Even your failures, Jesus died for. And therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, even if you've blown it. But commit now, from this moment forward, by God's grace, to never be the same. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, your word is challenging to us. Lord, I thank you that your mercy and forgiveness are so great because our failures and shortcomings couldn't be overcome any other way. Lord, I pray for every wife and husband and child and every parent that's hearing my voice. Lord, help us embrace the roles you've given us. Lord, where we failed, help us truly repent and turn away from it and purpose to obey. And Lord, for those we've hurt, help us ask for forgiveness. And I pray, Lord, amidst the body of Christ that forgiveness not only would be asked for, but it would also be freely given just as you've forgiven us. And Lord, I pray that you would change us. I pray that the families at Lakeside would be different, that we would conform our families and our homes to the image of Christ so that a lost and dying world would see through how we conduct our homes that Christ has made a difference. Lord, for good marriages, I pray you protect them from the evil one. And Lord, for those marriages that are struggling, I pray that your instruction today might bring about repentance that's necessary to honor you. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and grace. We need it. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.